Well, good morning, church, and greetings to uh, all our brothers and sisters at uh, all our campuses joining in here today as we open God's Word and see what He has afresh to say to us today. As you may imagine, as a, a dad of young children, I am regularly rereading children's literature and videos and audios that uh, some of which I had in my childhood, some of which is new, but kids love to re, re, re watch, re, 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 read, re, re, re listen. And I, I've enjoyed it mostly, honestly. If I never see Frozen again, that's fine with me. Uh, but a lot of it reminds me of my childhood. And I think much of it is really, really well done. And one example of something I think is really, really well done is this book, and the, or the movie, Horton Hears a Who. Some of you may be familiar with this. Horton Hears a Who. I'm going to not read it to you, but I'm going to just tell you the story very quickly. It's, it's the story of, of an elephant named Horton. And uh, he's kind of minding his own business. Uh, but one day, he hears the sound of a voice coming from a speck of dust. And he's sure that he hears a voice. And, you know, he has the biggest ears in the jungle. And so, you know, he can hear what other animals can't hear. And sure enough, he hears a voice. And he can communicate with th this voice. And they can communicate back. But he's the only one, the only animal that can hear any sound at all coming from that speck of dust. Well, we come to find out that... On this speck of dust, there is a group of people uh, known as the Who's. And the, the town that they live in on the speck of dust is Whoville. Okay, so you have the Who's of Whoville. It's kind of fun. And uh, the other animals don't hear this, and they're sure that Horton has lost his mind. They're confident that, that Horton needs to be locked up and taken away, and so they set about to do that. Uh, with Horton. Well, Horton is insisting that there are actually people that are living on this speck of dust, and he's doing his best to protect the speck of dust. And uh, the animals insist they can't hear anything. And so he, Horton says to the, the Who's, he says, make as much sound as you can so that the other animals can hear you. And they get drums and trumpets, and they blast as loud as they can, but none of the other animals can still hear anything. Well, the mayor of Whoville says there must be one person who's shirking their responsibilities, and he goes searching, and sure enough, there's one guy who wasn't participating in the trumpet blowing and the drum beating, and he says, you got to get in here and help us, and that one fellow goes up to the very top, highest point in Whoville, and he makes a sound, and that is the sound, along with all the others, that the other animals hear, and all of a sudden, the other animals realize that Horton was actually right that there are people on this speck of dust, these Who's who live in Whoville, and they agree that they all need to protect the Who's of Whoville. And that's the story, basically, of Horton. Here's a Who. I hope I don't ruin that for anybody who hasn't read it yet. <laughs> now, the Who's of Whoville up to the moment of Horton hearing them, they didn't realize how small they were. They, they thought they were normal size, and they thought that their world was a very significant world, that speck of dust. And uh, it wasn't until all of a sudden they discovered that there was an elephant 
a whole world much bigger than them, a whole being much bigger than them, that all of a sudden they realized how small they are. Some of you know where I'm going already. Can you imagine a who trying to comprehend how big an elephant is? I mean, it's hard enough for us to comprehend how big an elephant is, but much less a who in Whoville to even begin to comprehend how big an elephant is, and then, of course, by comparison, how small they are. It's a great story, and I'd like you to think about how similar our lives are to the Who's in Whoville. You know, if you didn't think any better, you would think our world is really, really big and significant and important. You would think that uh, the significant people of our world are really important people and the matters of our lives and uh, the, the, the dramas of our, of our story and society really is the center of the universe. It's the biggest thing. It's the most important thing that's going on. They thought they were big, but only because they didn't realize in proportion to the elephant how incredibly small they were. And a proper reading of the Bible is very similar to Horton, here's a who. It puts us in our place. It shows us, in proportion to God, how small we actually are. Now, the analogy breaks down, of course, because God is uh, far bigger than an elephant. And in comparison, uh, it's much easier for a who to understand an elephant than it is for us to understand God. And perhaps better than any other book in the whole Bible, Romans puts us in our place. Romans puts us in our place by comparing us to the greatness and the grandeur of God. And this text in front of us here today says it perhaps better than any other. We are in Romans 11, verses 33 through 35. I'm going to read it now. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, I'm saving verse 36 for next week, as it is one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. So today we are going to focus just on verses 33 through 35. And I want to remind us, first of all, just where it sits in the story of Romans. Here it is at the end of chapter 11. Here it is at the end of Paul's explanation in 11 through, or 9 through 11 of, of, of Israel, and Israel is God's chosen people, and yet how Israel fits into God's redemptive plan with respect to the Gentiles. All of this unfolding drama of redemption, it is the conclusion of everything he's been saying in Romans 9 through 11, but in many ways, it is the conclusion of everything we've seen in Romans so far. In fact, it would be very easy to outline Romans 1 through 11, gospel doctrine, uh, 12 through 16, gospel application. That's the book of Romans, and many of Paul's other letters as well. He follows a similar format, doctrine first, application. Sounds like a good sermon to me. We'll see. So 
The five chapters that are left in Romans are wonderful, but they are much more on the sort of practical application side. Verse, chapters 1 through 11 have been doctrinal, they've been rich, they've been gospel. And what Paul does here in these verses, it's like he's climbed this mountain for 11 chapters, the mountain of the gospel, and he stops and he pauses and he looks back at the expanse, at the beauty, at the glory of all that he has been uh, describing and teaching on, and he just gushes here with praise. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Three qualities there, riches, wisdom, and knowledge. They're all described by depth. But notice that it is, oh, the depth, okay? Oh, the depth. You feel the emotion in that, don't you? He's just, he's just kind of responding with this moment of praise. Oh, the depth. The depth here is, 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 is not defining a depth. It's marveling at the depth. You go to a public swimming pool, go to, you know, Solomon Park down the road here, and, and you walk around a public swimming pool, and they always have stenciled along the outside of the pool how deep it is. Here's the three-foot area. You know, here's the four-foot area. Here's the drop-off to the nine-foot area. No diving here, etc. Why do they do that? Well, they want us to understand where the line is, with what is over our heads. Because if you can't swim, maybe you can be over here in the kiddie area, but don't go over into the deep area. You got to know when something is over your head. And oh, the depth means that each of these qualities of God is over our heads. It is way beyond our comprehension. And that is really the main point of this section, and it's the main point of this whole message today, is that God is way, be- He's way over our heads. He's way beyond our comprehension. The God that you think you know is far greater than you or I know or could even imagine. Now, depth here is spatial, okay? God is not spatial. Oh, the depth is to marvel at God and acknowledge that he is more. He is deeper. He is bigger than we can imagine. And he focuses on these two qualities, wisdom and knowledge. As one commentator says, wisdom directs all things to the best end. Knowledge knows that end and issue. In other words, God knows everything and by the application of his wisdom outworks everything and sovereignty, of course, and power, outworks everything according to his perfect purposes and plans. He is infinite in his in the depth of his knowledge. He is infinite in the depth of his wisdom. If God had all knowledge but no wisdom, he'd be like the brilliant scientist who can't find his way home. If he was very wise but without knowledge, he'd be like the five-star general with all the communication lines cut, right? Very capable but unable to discern what's going on. God is both perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge, of all things, of all time, of all options matched with perfect wisdom, directing, guiding, and purposing all things to their greatest possible goal. Which, by the way, what is the greatest possible goal? What is the ultimate thing God is moving everything towards? It's verse 36, to him be the glory forever, amen. Everything that God purposes is towards the ultimate 
end in glory of God. That is the ultimate, highest, most noble, most wonderful, most honorable goal that God could ever do anything for is his own glory. There's more on that next week. But I want you to see here that God is the combination of the highest possible knowledge matched with the greatest possible wisdom directing towards the greatest possible goal, the glory of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Unsearchable, inscrutable. These are big words. We don't use these probably in our everyday conversation. In the Greek, they are basically synonyms, and they are both referring to the fact that the ways of God and the purposes of God are beyond our ability to comprehend. They are unknowable, they are incomprehensible, they are unfathomable. And what of God is unsearchable? Notice, he says, his judgments and his ways. Okay, what judgments and what ways, Paul, are you referring to here? Well, he's referring to the ones that he has been explaining now for 11 chapters in Romans. These purposes, these plans, the gospel, everything from the wrath of God in chapters 1 through 3 to the fact that we are all under the same condemnation for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, chapter 3, to the fact that God has purposed to save and justify the unrighteous, through the death of Jesus on the cross, that he is the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, this death on the cross, chapter 3, that we are all unrighteous, even Abraham, therefore we all have to be declared righteous even though we're not. This is what justification is. And the result of that, chapter 5, is that we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This grace is freedom not to sin. It is never freedom to sin. Chapter 6, this love is so amazing. It is sovereign love. Chapter 8, it's such grace, sovereign grace. Chapter 9, grace that continues to have a purpose for even Israel, even as the gospel opens wide the door for all humanity, for all who trust and believe to be saved. Chapters 10 through 11. And then he says, How unsearchable are God's judgments and God's ways. Listen, friends. In other words, what Paul is saying here is unsearchable and inscrutable are not the plans of God we don't know, but the plans of God we do know. Let me say that again. What he is saying here is is not that what is inscrutable, unsearchable, are the plans of God and the mysteries of God that we don't know and sort of are in the godness of God. Oh yeah, there's a lot about God we don't know. He is saying the very things he's been trying to explain, even these are unsearchable and inscrutable. John Murray says this, it is a mistake, however, to think that God's incomprehensibility applies only to his secret, unrevealed counsel. What God has not revealed does not come within the compass for our knowledge. It is inapprehensible. What is not apprehended is also incomprehensible. But the most significant aspect of incomprehensibility is that it applies to what God has revealed. I talked with a woman this week 
very sweet woman, came in, didn't have an ax to grind, which is unusual for the people that meet with me. <laughs> Some of you know who you are. And she just came in so sweetly and said, I have been wrestling with predestination and election. Can you help me unpack this a little bit more? And so I did my, the best that I could to explain in terms of mystery how God created a natural and moral world in which we make decisions for which we are eternally responsible, and yet somehow our decisions and directions that fulfill God's sovereign purpose and plan. To hold to this requires a very big God with purposes that go beyond us. If you eliminate that, you're uncomfortable with that, you, you eliminate election and predestination, you still have a God, but he is a smaller God. He's a more comfortable God for us. The elephant becomes small in Whoville. I would say a God maybe more like we humans would like him to be. And then you get to 1133, and here you have the author and apostle who perhaps better than anybody else who has ever lived understood the ways and purposes of God, and that guy says about the things he's just been explaining, they are unsearchable and they are inscrutable. What sort of God is Paul saying Romans 1 and 11 point to? A small, palatable, understandable God or a massive God that blows your mind? Or if I can say it this way, if you are maybe like this woman this week, you're still like snagged on Romans 9 and election. You're still struggling with God's sovereign love or God's sovereign grace. And if this teaching position is kind of like, it just, it like blows your mind. Doesn't what Paul say here indicate that the blow your mind interpretation is the right one? Isn't it implicitly arguing for the one where you go, I can't get it. And so if you're looking at Romans 9 and going, I still don't get it. Exactly. Exactly. You know, he could have gone through all of that teaching and he could have come to the end uh, on, on the predestination stuff and said, you know, just in case you're misunderstanding what I'm saying here, don't think that I'm suggesting by any means that, uh, that, that, that God's sovereignty means that we aren't totally free to do whatever we want and we're free from God's control. I would never suggest sort of thing or such a thing. He could have said that. He doesn't say that. He gets to the end of it and he goes, So you can be confident that you are seeing these doctrines of grace and salvation the way Paul saw them if you end up shaking your head in bewilderment and wonder. And I think we should take comfort that these deep doctrines that we have been studying, even 
the Apostle Paul says they are unsearchable. And if they are unsearchable for him, how much more normal people like you and me? Now notice, he doesn't stop there. As often uh, he does, he pulls from the Old Testament here now to reinforce his point. And he has here a quote from Isaiah and a quote from Job. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? So the first quote is Isaiah, second is Job. And these are both, of course, true. Has God ever needed a counselor? Has he ever, you know, paid a, 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 a 110 bucks for an hour to go see somebody and uh, to ask for some advice? No, God doesn't need a counselor. He also doesn't need a banker or a benefactor who has given a gift to him to be repaid. And the idea here is that everything comes from God. So who has ever, who has ever done something to put God in his debt? Nobody. Who could, ever, who could God ever owe something to? Do you see the correlation with the previous verse there then? He has all wisdom and knowledge, so who could ever counsel him? He has all riches, so to whom could he ever be indebted? And so taken as a whole, these verses are just pounding home the point of the greatness and the grandeur of our God. He is great in his knowledge, he is great in his wisdom, he is great in his riches, who is like him? Romans 11, 33 through 35. Now I'm gonna follow Paul's outline, doctrine, application. I have some application here for our church family, for all of us. What does this mean? How do we apply it? And the first thing I'd like us to see here is that right theology always leads to doxology, or at least it should. Right theology leads to doxology. Now, doxology isn't a word that we use very often. We think it's a, a hymn that some of us used to sing at the end of services, right? Let's sing the doxology together. We still sing the doxology in the DeWitt home. It's a good song. But what does doxology mean? Doc, uh, doxa is the word for glory, and so it's basically to give glory, to give praise. We might use the word worship for doxology. And the reason I point this out is because of the location of this effusive praise from the Apostle Paul. For nearly 11 chapters, Paul has gone into the deepest dive doctrinal dive of the gospel in all of the canon of scripture. He's gone deep on the gospel. He's gone deep on God's ways. He's gone deep on God's purposes. He's gone deep in, you know, all of these implications from Abraham to the Jews to the Gentiles and all the rest. It is the richest 11 chapters of doctrine in all of the Bible. And he gets to the end of it. And what is his response? Is he just quiet does he clear his throat? <clears throat> and now moving on to application. No. All this truth for Paul is much more than interesting information. This was no lecture. I believe Paul wrote verse chapters 1 through 11 with tears in his eyes and certainly tears in his heart. 
tears of personal sorrow and repentance, tears of gladness and joy. And it's the sense of it here is that the truths of the gospel and the implications of what God has done and how God is working in this world through, through the gospel, it just wells up in his heart as he's writing now these 11 chapters. And he gets to the end of the 11th chapter and he just can't contain himself anymore. He just like, oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God. It just kind of, just kind of, blah, out it comes. And I want you to see that the deepest explanation of the gospel produces the greatest apostolic joy. Where it's located is important. Why do I say this? Here's why I say it. Because we live in a day where not only in the world in general, but in churches and certainly even in evangelical churches, theology and deep doctrine is not very popular. Have you noticed We live in a day where there is much more superficial, dumbing down, making it so simple. We don't want anything very complicated or certainly anything deep, nothing over anybody's head. No, no. We must not have that. I sat in a room with a guy who I would even count as a friend. He pastors a very large megachurch in the south. And I listened to him rant against churches that teach doctrine on Sundays. And his argument was that this isn't what people want. This is not what they're looking for. We've got to meet people, you know, meet them where where their needs are at. And that certainly isn't doctrine. I recall John Piper explaining this phenomenon in the world. And he says, you know, the reason why church people are no longer moved by doctrine or interested in doctrine is because their pastors are no longer moved by doctrine or interested in doctrine. That's why. And I just think this explains so much of popular evangelicalism, certainly in America today. When God doesn't excite us anymore, something has to excite us. We have to be excited. We have to have enthusiasm about something. And if it's not God, well, then we've got to replace it with something else. And so what do we do? Well, let's hype. Let's be a hype church. How about the show? We come for the show. It's an amazing show. We come for the feelings that the show produces. Something has to stir our emotions other than God. You know, we used to have Christian bookstores. They're, they don't exist anymore. Thank you, Amazon. Uh, but if you used to go to a Christian bookstore, what were, all, what were the, the, uh, the end caps and the bestseller books, Christian books, what were, they all, what were they about? Were any of them about God? No, 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 those don't sell well. Were any of them doctrinal in a sense of like, Doctrinal teaching, all teachings doctrinal in that sense, but no, they weren't that. What were the popular books? Even to this day, it's always seven ways to improve your family, seven ways to have a better life, seven ways to do this or that, right? That's what, why do they do books like that? Because that's what Christian people are interested in. Roll out a book on God, it, you know, it won't sell well at all. 
Is that a coincidence? Or is it an indication where the church is at today? May I ask you today, where are you at? Where are you at? What are you looking for in a church? How do you evaluate a Sunday gathering? You feel good about it? You liked it? As I read recently, we don't care. We're not here to worship you. We're here to worship God. I've made it no secret for 22 years now here that I desire to pastor a deep and doctrinal loving congregation. And I can rant and I can all I want. But the temperature in this congregation is dependent on your hearts, right? Where are you at, Bethel Church? If I left here, what kind of pastor would you want? A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Superficial superficial theology always leads to superficial Christians and superficial churches, or maybe we should say superficial professing Christians. And it's just so common right now, most of us don't even realize that we've swum in the shallow end for so long. And then you come to Romans, and many Christians, like, I'm not interested in that. Why? Because it feels like it's over my head. I want the kiddie pool and you're forcing me into the deep end of the pool. No, we're in the ocean, brothers and sisters. We are in the ocean. And here we discover that the deep things of God are not only mind-blowing, but they produce a better doxology, a humbler Christian, a grace-shocked, grace-filled Christian who lives in wonder that God would save someone like me. Second application is this, that right theology should always lead to wonder. Should always lead to wonder. The place of these verses tells us theology should lead to worship. The content of the verses tells us That theology should always lead to wonder. If you listen to somebody talk, even a preacher, pastor, or some guy at work, and you get a sense from him that that he thinks he's got God all figured out. If you hear that, I'm here to tell you today, that is the opposite vibe of somebody who actually understands these things. It's kind of like, for me, it's kind of like marriage. I knew a lot more about marriage when I was single. (laughs) Now you come up to me and say, hey, you know, opine with us some deep truths about marriage. I just... (sighs) Single people, experts on marriage. You talk to somebody married 50 years, hey, what's the secret of staying married? I submit to you, the 50-year married person knows a little bit more than the single person who's got it all figured out. 
There's an old adage, the most confident theologian is a second-year seminary student. And I know this because that was me, right? I've got a little bit of knowledge. I'm figuring things out. I can quote Greek words to you. So now listen to me because I am a second-year seminary student. I have a little bit of knowledge about a few things. But the way we can know we know things is when we begin to realize how much we don't know. Now, that is not to say that we cannot be confident with assertions that the Bible asserts. And I'm not, I'm not wanting us to go into this like, well, no, none of us could be confident about anything or say anything with certainty, okay? That's postmodernism. We're not doing that. But what I'm talking about is the vibe of pride that comes across that is a sure indicator that this is someone who has not dealt seriously with how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. There are so many people, they think they got God figured out, they got theology all figured out, they've got everything, you know, they got, it's all, God's in their box. Here's God, I've got him in my box, this is who he is, I'm comfortable with it, I'm good, let's move on. You haven't begun to understand anything. Neither have I. God is so much greater he blows away our boxes. Oh, Pastor Steve, that sounds so good. It riles the people up. But I'm actually the exception to that. You just try me. Because I actually think I do have things figured out. Pastor Steve, you just give it a go. All right, I will. What is unsearchable? God is sovereign over all, and we are responsible for our choices. Jesus is eternally, simultaneously, completely God and human. Scripture was written by men and completely the words of God. Humans reproduce naturally, but each one given an eternal soul by God. The human body dies, but the real us, the soul, lives forever. In eternity past, God purposed evil without personally being responsible for evil. Jesus died on the cross, imputed with guilt for the sins of people who have not yet existed. We personally believe, but God causes us to believe. God created everything out of material nothingness. Resurrection separates or reunites the separated soul from bodies, billions of whom have decayed to nothing. Jesus the eternal God was born of a virgin. You figure all that out, and then we'll talk. The seed thought on that derived from a favorite teacher of mine. But you got all that figured out? Are you somehow, magically, the one person in all of Christian history more insightful than the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing the most doctrinal book in all of the Bible. Is it you, my friend? And Paul's example here, it's really an example of humility. Because here, the one guy who we would think has it figured out more than any of us, ends his teaching with wonder. Here's the proper response. If you want to know, if, if maybe you're just starting to figure it out a little bit, if when you talk about these things, you just go, 
God. Wow. Well, now maybe you're actually beginning to comprehend something. It always leads to wonder. Is that where your heart is today? Third application is that the doctrines of grace put us in our place. The doctrines of grace put us in our place. Hey, Pastor Steve, did you get any pushback on that predestination and election stuff? A little. Did anyone leave the church because of it? A few. What did we teach? Here's what we taught. That somehow in the infinity of who God is, he purposed all things, knew all things, and is doing all things exactly the way he desires. That's what we taught. Why does the natural man not like that? Why doesn't the natural man like the doctrines of grace? Romans 1.21, we neither honor God or give thanks to him. Our pride revolts against anything that diminishes us, that puts us in our place. And that's exactly what Romans 1 through 11 does. It puts us in our place, and it puts us in a place we naturally don't like. Why? Because it makes us small. You read Romans 1 through 11, it just keeps making us smaller and smaller and smaller and simultaneously making God bigger and bigger and bigger. Bigger than we can comprehend. But it is there in our smallness, in our sinfulness, in our depravity, it is there in that place of desperation that the expanse of God's love for us, the we little people, blows our mind. And isn't that what Paul says here? Or to say it this way, if you were to read Horton, here's a who. Who do you think you are in the story? Like, oh, I'm the elephant. I'm the kangaroo. I'm the monkey. No. I'm the dust. Nope. Who are we? We're the little who's in Whoville. We're the little people who think our dust is the whole thing. And even this analogy is insufficient because it's much easier for a who to understand an elephant than for a human to comprehend Almighty God. Why? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen.